Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Jacksonville Presbyterian Church. If we haven't met, my name is Dustin. I get to be the lead pastor here. If you would, as you make your way back, grab your Bibles. Let's remain standing for the reading of God's Word if you're able. I'd love for everybody to have a copy of God's Word out in front of them. Open up to Ephesians chapter 4. Welcome to God's house. Uh, We are into the book of Ephesians this fall. I'd love for everybody to stand, have a copy of God's printed word out in front of them. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 4, the the first 16 verses. So if you're able, let's stand for the reading of God's word out of respect. We're into Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. If you don't have a print Bible, grab one of those blue hardback Bibles, page 1161. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, please take one of these home with you. Consider our gift to you. We'd love for everyone to have a copy of God's Word in their home. With that in mind, friend, let's hear from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. These are the words from the Apostle Paul. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible open as we pray together in the spirit. And Father, we come before you uh, holding your holy and inerrant word in our hands. And Lord, we pray that we would make room for it in our hearts. Lord, we pray that we would be molded and shaped more and more into the image and the fullness of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, would we hear everything that we are meant to hear from your word this morning? We are ready. Speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can anybody guess who wrote these words? Okay, if you know anything about me, there's some context clues. If you know something about me, you may be able to guess who I'm about to quote. Let's try to see if you can figure out who wrote these words. It is easily forgotten that Christian community is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that at any day may be taken from us, that the time in which it keeps us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. 
Let him thank God on his knees and declare it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. Anybody want to guess who wrote those words? They were written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. They were written in the year 1939. Uh, They were not written by Pastor Larry Young, although I think he would agree with those, uh, the pastor emeritus here. If you know me, you'll know that uh, I find a lot of, uh, you know, encouragement as a spiritual, uh, you know, sort of disciple, if you will, of my mentor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you don't know Bonhoeffer's story, he is famous for being a German pastor. He wrote those words in 1939 at the onbreak of World War II, and uh, he actually ran an underground seminary, a secret seminary faithful to God's word in the midst of Nazi Germany in 1943. He was famously arrested two weeks after he had gotten engaged, and he was put into concentration camps, and eventually he was executed. Uh, He was hung by piano wire uh, just a few weeks before the Allies liberated his concentration camp. So why do I, I mention Dietrich Bonhoeffer? It's fascinating if you were to read his short book on community called Life Together. He wrote those in 1939, and what he's saying is he's saying, don't forget how precious Christian community is. And if you have Christians in your life, you should be on your knees praising God because the Christian community is what keeps us back from periods of utter loneliness. And just after a few years of writing these words, Bonhoeffer himself was lonely imprisoned in a concentration camp for his testimony to Christ in opposition to Nazi Germany. In a way then, friend, what I want to suggest to you is when you and I read Life Together by Bonhoeffer, we read it differently because it's coming to us from a prison cell. The prison cell acts in a way like an amplifier. It makes his words louder and more poignant because when he says, don't give up on community, we hear it as someone who lost that. Friends, today is the day of prayer for the international persecuted church around the world. We are reminded today that there are Christians who are persecuted and imprisoned for their testimony to Christ. And today, of all days, in Ephesians chapter 4, in our very first sentence, Paul says, listen to me, I am speaking from a prison cell. Look at verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord... May Paul's prison cell be an amplifier in Christian with these words echo in the halls of your heart. His chains amplify his message to us. What does Paul say from his prison cell? I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And what is this great calling upon every Christian saved by grace? That we would live how? Look at verse 2. That you and I, Christian, would live with all humility, gentleness, patience, and that we would bear with one another in love, and that we would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If you were to look down at Ephesians, uh, you know, if you've been with us for the last several weeks, you may know that I've been suggesting to you, as have almost every other commentator on the planet, that Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, the first three chapters, really pertain to the the indicatives of the Christian life, meaning who is God, who am I, what is the gospel, what is the church, how are we saved, we're saved by grace, 
And it's really sort of three chapters of doctrine. It's the message of Jesus Christ. It's telling us who we are. We were all children of wrath before we were redeemed. We were all sinners until we became saints and washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's a message that you and I receive. It's not a message that we earn because it's a gift of God so that no one can boast, right? Does this sound familiar? This is Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. It is the message of the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ who is now Lord over all things and calling all people into his kingdom. Now, that is the great doctrines of the faith. That is the message of Jesus Christ. He is alive and calling all people into his kingdom. But now the question for Paul and for you and me is, so what? <laughs> now what do we do about it? Am I just hanging around here till I die and go to heaven? What is the Christian life all about? So look down with me at Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6. Because the second half of Ephesians is telling you and me, Christian, how to live the Christian life. So if you are baptized, if you claim Jesus Christ, these words are for you. It is not how do you earn your salvation. These words are, now that you are free, how do you live like a free person? Did you catch that? This is not how do you earn your salvation by good works. What this is is how do forgiven people live? How do redeemed people live? Look down at Ephesians chapter 4. If you write notes in your Bible, I'd encourage you to write this down because I think this is just so helpful for the rest of our time together through this year in Ephesians. Now, if you were to try to summarize how Paul addresses how do we live the Christian life, uh, Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, that first section, you could call that whole section the Christian life in relation to the church. The first way that Paul addresses how do we live the Christian life is he talks about the church, the body of Christ. How do we treat other Christians? It's not how do we engage the world around us. It's how does our family as God's people, how do we treat each other? So Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 is all about the church, the body of Christ. How do we live the Christian life in relation to each other? Um, in some sense, it's an in-family discussion. Do you ever have those times with your kids where you're like, hey, we need to, don't let your friends come over. We're going to have a family discussion right now. How are we going to treat ourselves and each other and our family? That's what Paul's doing. The next section, if you were following, in verses 17 through the end of chapter 4, 17 through 32, which... Uh, Pastor Scott's going to be preaching on next week, is how do we live the Christian life in relation to the self? If the first section of chapter 4 is how do I live in relation to other Christians, and then he follows up, okay, how do you live the Christian life by yourself? What does it mean for you as an individual? How do you live the life of Christ in relation to yourself? And guess what Paul's going to say? Put off your old self, put on the new self in Christ. Going into chapter 5, if you were to take notes, Verses 5, 1 through 21, this section, you could see it as, how does the Christian live in the midst of a dark world? I don't know if you know this, but you and I, we live in a dark world. Isaiah says, woe to those who call darkness light and light darkness. You know, um, I've spent the last four years of my life studying virtue and moral theology, which sounds really dry and boring to most of you. But what I can tell you, having read a lot of books on this topic, is you and I, we live in a culture where the classic virtues are now seen as vices, and everything we once thought was a vice and bad for our souls is now glorified as something good for our souls. We live in a dark world that calls darkness light and light the darkness. But how do you and I live in the midst of that culture, Christian? Well, that's what Ephesians 5, 1 through 21 is all about. Now, if you go to Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, if you look down in your Bibles, this is how do you and I live the Christian life in relation to our spouses? 
So if you have a husband or wife in the room, this pertains to you. And if you don't, you and I have a vested interest in godly marriages, which is why Paul tells all of the church how husbands and wives are to treat each other. Chapter 6, he goes through the Christian life in relation to our children and our family. Chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, Paul talks about the Christian life in relation to our work and our employment. How does the gospel shape you when it comes to your boss and how you talk about him? Or how does it shape the way you treat your employees? That's what Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 is about. And lastly, the last section, this is Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, it's how do you and I live the Christian life in relation to the demonic forces in this world and Satan? So in some ways, you could say all of Ephesians 4 through 6 is how do you and I live the Christian life? What does it really mean? Okay, I believe in Jesus. He died for my sins. He's alive. His Holy Spirit is in me. Now what? Well, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 answers that question. But notice where Paul begins. This goes against our individualistic ideas of life, right? You and I, we come from the West mostly. So we think in terms of the individual. We have this very Western way of viewing things where it's all about me and myself, But what Paul starts with in Ephesians 4 is a corrective. What he says is the first place that you and I start to live the Christian life is in relation to other Christians. It's in community. Because guess what? How do you learn to become patient? You know how you learn to become patient? You spend some time with some Christians who drive you crazy. (laughs) How do you learn to forgive as you have been forgiven? Every time a Christian hurts you, you have an opportunity to embody the gospel and to forgive, to fight the good fight. Every time somebody is rough with you, you and I have the opportunity to turn the other cheek and to be gentle. What does it mean to be eager to maintain the unity of Christ's blessed church for whom he shed his own blood? See, what I want to suggest to you is uh, the... Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, our passage this morning, is all about how do you and I live the Christian life in relation to other believers. I'm going to break this down into three sections. I hope you see it. Uh, This passage of Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, that's a whole section, and I'm going to call it many believers, many believers, but there's one call. So how do we live in relation, you know, to the church, to other believers? Well, look at verse 1. Paul says what? I, therefore, a prisoner, right, hearing his prison, not as something that silences his message, but amplifies its application. Paul is saying something to us important. And he urges us to do what? Walk in a manner worthy of what? The calling to which you have been called. And then later on in verse 4, he will say again, just as you were called to the hope that belongs to your call. So what I want to suggest to you this section in Ephesians is all about is Paul is talking about the church, the body of Christ, all of the believers. And he's saying there are many different believers in the body of Christ, and there are many different strengths. There's many different personality types. There are many different ethnic groups represented. There are many different socioeconomic groups represented. There are men and women, young and old. But each Christian, every believer has one call on their life. What is the one call on every believer? It's not about downplaying your personality type. Jesus loved different personality types. Don't forget, when he chose 12 apostles, he picked one that was a political zealot. It's pretty intense. 
He was literally called Simon the Zealot, you know, like Steve, the political guy. And then he also called a guy named Matthew, who was a tax collector and compromised by this filthy world. Jesus is great with different personality types. He's great with how he made you unique. But each one of us, if you are a Christian, have the same call, the one call on our lives. And you know what the call is? It's not just to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That's the first step of the call. The great call is that we would embody the character of Jesus Christ. That you and I, each in our own quirks and uniqueness, would each grow more and more like Jesus. So what would that look like for you to grow more like Jesus? Well, Paul tells you. Look at verse 2. This is the great call on your life. Notice that it's not about your career. What is the great call in our lives? That we would grow in humility. This is a list of virtues, if you don't know it. This is a list of virtues. Humility, gentleness, patience. And if you don't know what patience looks like, Paul is going to say it's bearing with people who annoy you. (laughs) Bearing with one another in love. That word patience right there could be translated meekness. Blessed are the meek. It doesn't mean you're a pushover. What it means is you restrain your anger when people drive you crazy. And the last virtue is what? You don't just put up with other Christians. You are actually eager to maintain the unity of the body of Christ. Eager to find points of connection with other believers. What I want you to recognize, though, as you listen to this list of character traits, what I want to suggest to your consideration on behalf of Jesus is you and I, we live in a dark world where what is light is called dark and what is dark is called light. And what I mean by that, another way I could say that is every one of those virtues that I just espoused are actually seen as vices in our world. Think about it this way. What is, is, is humility a virtue? No, pride is literally the rallying cry of our generation. Pride in every sense. Be proud of who you are. Don't take anything from anybody. Stand up straight. Put your nose up and don't let anybody look down on you. And if they do, cut them out of your life because they're haters, right? Aren't you, just pause for a second. Christian, aren't you really glad that's not how Jesus treated you? Aren't you super glad that's not how Jesus treated you? You know who we love? We love rough people. We love the middle finger. We love it so much we put it on the back of our windows, of our cars. I had to be like, child, don't look at that awful bumper sticker. If there's a car in this parking lot with a middle finger sticker, we're going to talk, y'all. We love rough people, right? You know what we love? We love impatience. We want it now. In fact, we don't even want it now. We wanted it a year ago, right? And what do we do when people annoy us? What do we, you know, who, who here hasn't unfriended somebody because of something they said or thought? Who here was just thankful they could leave those other annoying Christians behind? And yet what, think about this world that Paul is trying to get you to live into. You are not proud. You're what? You're humble, which means that you treat other people as more significant than yourself. And why are you humble? Why are you called to be humble like that? Because Jesus, who was on the throne of heaven, emptied himself of everything 
and took the form of a servant and even humbled himself to the point of death for you. Is that how you learned Christ? Was to be saved by Christ's humility so that you might be proud? Far be it from us. Do we like it when Jesus or God, would you want God to be rough with you? I mean, if you were stuck in sin, how would you want someone to correct you? Gently, right? If you were struggling, would you want someone to be around you patiently or impatiently? We're so tempted to cut people out of our lives. If anything, I think that's what happened through COVID was we just, we decided like, as um, one bumper sticker I saw yesterday said, I like cats and like three people. Preach to the cat people in the room, I guess. There is an alternative way of living, Christian. There is an alternative way of life that is not like this world. And you know what it looks like? It looks like Jesus. You know, one of, my, one of the most encouraging things Jesus ever says to me is in the Gospel of John, and he's talking to the apostles who are, like, struggling so bad. If you read the Gospels, like, they're slow, slow on the uptake of, like, everything Jesus says. At one point, you know, the apostles are like, hey, Jesus, can we, like, call down hellfire to blow up this town? And Jesus is like, no, we got to start from scratch. We're going to go back to the gospel. And then what's really beautiful is after he's resurrected, he sends those same guys back to that town, and they have a totally different message to present to them. But one of, my, one of the most encouraging things Jesus says is he says, there are many things that I long to tell you, but you're not ready. Think about that for a second. There are many things that Jesus wanted to tell the apostle Peter. He just wasn't ready for it yet. Friends, there's a sense that we have so much growth to do. We don't want to be cutting people off. There's so much growth opportunity. It happens in the church. Why do, why do we refuse to cut people out of our lives? You know, why, why would we be eager to maintain the unity of the church? Why would we bear with one another? Well, it's because we're all just stumbling. <laughs> we're all like little children trying to grow up into the Lord. And as we stumble and as we grow, how does Jesus treat us? He's patient towards us. And what is Jesus calling us to do? What is Paul saying from the prison cell? Be patient with each other. Show each other grace. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this uh, in Life Together. Um, if, you're, if, you're not in a, if you're not in a small group, I'd encourage you to join a small group one day. And if you're in a small group, I'd encourage you one day to read Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, he goes on and he has this profound insight about the value of the Christian community. And he says this, which has stuck with me uh, ever since I read this. Bonhoeffer writes, uh, The Christian who loves their dream of Christian community more than the actual Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial, if we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, even when there is no great experiences and no discoverable riches, but instead when we find weakness in each other and small faith and difficulty, if we do not praise God for that, we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure of the fullness of Jesus Christ. How do we grow more patient? How do we grow more loving? How do we grow more forgiving? What's Bonhoeffer saying from his prison cell? You can't let your dream of the perfect church ruin 
your encounter of the actual church that you reside in, which, guess what, is full of Christians who are not as mature as they think they are, who are not as advanced as we think we are, who are often educated beyond our obedience. You ever heard that? You know what somebody told me when I was in seminary, when I went to graduate school to, you know, study God? You know what somebody told me? They said, Dustin, you are educated beyond your obedience. (laughs) And I said, I'm glad I'm in the church because that's true. Because all knowledge leads to humility, not pride. Why would you live this way, Christian? What I'm suggesting to you is that regardless of your personality type, in fact, because of your uniqueness, every Christian has this call in their life. Why would you do that? Why is this the one call for every Christian? Well, Paul makes the argument in verses 4, 5, and 6. Look, Paul says, why do we do this? Because there is one body, that is, there's one church, there's one body of Christ, and one spirit. There's one Holy Spirit that indwells all believers in Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit in you is the same spirit that dwells in all of God's children. Just as you were called to the one hope. What is our hope? The hope is the gospel of grace. There's one message of salvation, which belongs to our what? Verse 4, our call. This is part of our call. One Lord, Jesus Christ, one faith, one true message of Jesus, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Right? So whether you were dunked or sprinkled or spritzed, The point is, is that we are all sharing of the same waters of baptism. If you are a Christian, you are marked as having received the Holy Spirit and poured out on your life. So why does Paul say we live this way? It's because we serve one Lord and we are united by one Holy Spirit. And we can't just try to get rid of the other parts of the body of Christ. You see there in verse 4, he says there's one body. What he means is he, Paul likes to use the analogy of a human body for the church. And we all know that human bodies have different body parts. I've often suggested to you that uh, Presbyterians were like, what part of a body? We're like the nostril hairs. And the reason I say that is because we're not necessarily cute and cuddly. Um, actually, this is a fun fact. Earlier at 9 o'clock, a charismatic pastor from our town came to worship He's retired. And he goes, your church still waters. (laughs) Which I think was a compliment. (laughs) And I said, you know, our demeanors may be cool, but our hearts are warm. (laughs) I compare Presbyterians to nose hairs because we like to think that we're filters, right? We like to think that we're sniffing out false teaching and human cunning. We like to study scripture diligently, you know? And you know know what purpose nostril hairs serve? They are to filter out things like pollen. You know, so if you were to clear yourself out of all your nostril hairs, every spring, buddy, pollen would wreck your world. You know, your nostril hairs are so important. Did you know that some people put Rogaine in their nostrils during springtime to combat pollen? Did you know that? You didn't know that because I just made it up. It's not true. I don't know. Maybe it's true. People are weird. I'm, I'm being a little facetious, but friends, that's the analogy that Paul's using. The body of Christ is like this multifaceted body that has all of these different body parts, and they're all unique. And the weaker body parts deserve all of the more respect and care. And the hand cannot say to the foot, leave, because we all need each other. So we should be eager to maintain the unity of the body of Christ, not eager to cut each other out of our lives. We should be eagerly thinking about who to forgive 
Matthew 18 gives us the perfect steps to reconcile with other Christians. We should be eager to reconcile. Every time somebody comes to mind in the church or in Christ's church around the world that drives you crazy or you're having a hard time for, to forgive, friends, every time that person comes to mind, that is an opportunity for you and I to pray and to forgive. And if necessary, maybe put Matthew 18 into practice. We should be eager to grow like Jesus. So if that's the idea, right, that there's many believers, but there's one call to be like Jesus, how are we equipped to do this? I mean, that sounds all great and dandy, but how does this actually play itself out? Well, notice where Paul goes next. Look at verse 7. So verse 7 is the key to understanding this. Paul says, grace was given to each one of us. That includes every Christian in the room right now. God's grace was uniquely given to you. According to what? This is verse 7. According to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay, so when I was growing up, I was raised a Southern Baptist, which, and now I'm a recovering Baptist, but you know what that means? You know what it means if you're raised Southern Baptist? You know what it means? It means we grew up on a certain kind of food. Anybody know what kind of food? It's called casseroles. Do y'all eat casseroles out here? I, you know, if you had cut me, I would have bled a little bit of like potato casserole, I think. I was raised on casseroles. And if you don't know what a casserole is, it's a miracle where you put a bunch of random food in a little glass dish and you put it in the oven and you heat it up and, you know, miraculously this beautiful meal is given to you, right? You get veggies, you get meat, you get cheese. I mean, it's just wonderful. I want you to keep that image of a casserole in your mind. Okay? Because listen to what Paul says. Grace that word grace there, it doesn't just necessarily, it doesn't mean like saving grace. What it means is God's kindness, right? So we can sing about God's kindness. That can also be the word for grace, God's gift. It was given to you in a specific measure. You know, to use the metaphor, there is a scoop of the casserole of God's kindness that is unique to you, that nobody else has. And it is made up of delicious potatoes and meats and all kind of wonderful things, but it is tailor-made for you, individual. How does Paul make this argument? Well, look at verse 8. He first grounds it in the Old Testament. He quotes Psalm 68, talking about how God has ascended on high, freed captives, and given gifts to humanity. And what Paul does is he takes a Christological reading of Psalm 68. That means he looks at Psalm 68 and says, what does this tell me about Jesus Christ? And when did God ultimately ascend? When did God ultimately earn the victory? And when did God start freeing people and give gifts to humanity? Well, of course, it all happened in the death and resurrection of the Son of God when he ascended on high. And now Jesus, from the throne of heaven, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, is giving gifts to the body of Christ, to people like you. And what is it that the risen Lord Jesus has given you, Christian, to enable you to Follow and hear this one call to be like Jesus. What has Jesus given you? What's in the casserole? Look at verse 11. What did Jesus give us? The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. Friends, if you were to look at the casserole of the kingdom of God, that's what's in it. Those are the basics of the meal. Who are those apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers? Well, One easy way to think about it is who are the apostles? When Paul talks about apostles in Ephesians, he's primarily talking about the apostolic fathers of the church. 
the 12 men plus Paul who give us the apostolic teaching on behalf of Jesus Christ. So in your lap, you have the message of the apostles. The apostle Paul has given us how many letters? 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament come from the Apostle Paul. So part of God's grace to you, Christian, part of God's kindness to you is the teachings of the New Testament. We have the teachings of the Apostle Peter, you know, like First and Second Peter. We have the teachings of the Apostle John in the Gospel of John, First, Second, and Third John. We have the teachings of the Apostle Matthew, whose other's name was Levi. So Christian, part of the casserole, part of God's kindness to you is that he has given you his inerrant word. Are you listening to the apostles? Do you have time daily to study the teachings of the apostles? Uh, Christians, there are, there are Christians today in the persecuted world that do not have access to the Bible sitting in your lap. And we struggle to remember to read it every day. And they yearn to know the words of Scripture Friends, you have the apostles' teachings. It's in your lap. If you don't have a Bible, take the Bible home. It contains the words of life. The other group of people that Paul says is God's kindness to you are the prophets. Uh, These are the New Testament prophets, people like Anna, the prophetess, the daughters of Sceva, the prophets, as you can read about, like Agabus. These are all people from the book of Acts. Uh, apostles, uh, they give us the apostolic teaching, the prophets, they give us these oracles from God. Has anyone ever given you just the right message at just the right time? He goes on and he mentions the evangelists. The evangelists right there are the people who preach the message of Jesus Christ. They are the evangelists. You know anything about people like Billy Graham? Anybody ever come to faith at a Billy Graham crusade? Anybody ever walk forward? Nobody has gone forward. It's amazing. Well, we're not Baptists here, so it's not. When you think about evangelists as unique gifts to you, think about it this way. You uniquely have the New Testament. And when you read the Bible, God is uniquely speaking to you. The things you're picking up on, the things the Spirit is communicating to you, are not necessarily the things I'm picking up on, because they may not be what I need to worry about. The people who have spoken prophetically in my life may not be the same people that have spoken in your life. I can guarantee you that nobody in this room was led to faith in Jesus Christ by the evangelist that led me to faith in Jesus Christ. You know why? Because he's some dude from Mississippi. When I went to college, when I was 20, he shared the message of Jesus Christ to me. He wasn't my pastor. He was not an apostle because he didn't write the New Testament. But God used him uniquely to evangelize. Christian, who led you to saving faith. Who led you to saving faith? You think everybody in the room would say the same people? No. Paul goes on and he says, you know what else looks like grace in your life? The shepherds and the teachers. Now we could argue all day, and commentators have, are those two different groups of people or are they one and the same? Whichever perspective you take, there are people who have taught you the faith. For me, it's guys like St. Augustine and Dietrich Bonhoeffer that have taught me what it means to really follow Jesus. But Bonhoeffer is not my shepherd. You know why? Because I've never prayed with him. 
Bonhoeffer has never laid his hands on me. He's never held me accountable. He's never said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I've never had a conversation with him because he's not my pastor. Christian, part of God's grace to you, part of the beauty of the church is that you can get teachers. You can get the best teachers in the world. You can find them all on YouTube. You can find them all online. You can read all of the best books and praise God for the teaching ministry of the church. But Christian, who were the shepherds in your life? Who were the people who prayed with you? Who said, not this way. There's a higher call in your life. This way. They may not be the same people as the people who led you to Christ. Let me just finish up with this, Christian. You have one call in your life. It's to live like Jesus Christ, to embody not the virtues of this world, but the virtues of Jesus Christ. God has given you a lifetime of spiritual mentors in your life, and they all have one goal. Every true spiritual mentor, whether it's an apostle, whether it's your mom, whether it was an evangelist like Billy Graham, whether it was a pastor who could hold your hand and pray with you, or it was a teacher who you haven't met yet, they all had one goal to make you mature in Christ. That's where Paul goes. There's many gifts, but there's one goal, which is maturity, and that's where Paul finishes. You see there in verse 13, he says, what is the goal? That we would all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Every great, true, spiritual guide can echo Paul, imitate me, as I imitate Christ. They all knew that the ultimate standard for each believer is not them, not their quirks, not their personality, not their voice, but Jesus Christ, his character. And why did they do this? So that we would not be swayed by this world. You know, Paul uses this analogy. He doesn't want us to be like kids. Now, does Paul hate kids? No. I love kids. I love having kids. We love you know, having a big family. Paul's not saying kids are bad. When he says don't be like kids, what he means is don't be a man-child. You know what a man-child is? It's a boy who can shave. It's a guy who won't get his life together. Ladies, you have dated guys like this. I know you have, right? And you're like, grow up. That's the kind of analogy that Paul's using here. He wants us not to lose our faith like children, but to grow to be strong, to grow into maturity so that we become like Jesus not swayed back and forth. And why is that? Because Paul finishes, because there are many parts to the body of Christ, but there's one body. Look at verse 15 through 16. Paul keeps coming back. The motivation for you and me is we have one body of Christ. The hand cannot say to the foot, I have no need of you. We're all pulling in the same direction. So let me just close with this. You know, today on the day of um, international persecution, for Christians as we pray for them. If you were to step back and, you know, Paul were able to speak to you from his prison cell, what do you think he would be urging you to do? What conversations would he be urging you to have? What forgivenesses would he be urging you to extend? Friends, I want to suggest to you that there is one call there's really only one goal, and there's only one body of Christ. We've got to do it together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we just praise you for the honor 
of the call to be like Jesus in our world. Holy Spirit, we pray that we would exercise humility, gentleness towards each other, that we would be bearing with one another in love, and Lord, that we would not valorize impatience, but that we would know the patience of Christ and show it to others. Lord, we thank you that there are many things that each one of us has yet to learn. And Lord, we thank you that you are slowly walking us towards sanctification each day. Lord, calling us higher and higher to your son and to the stature of the fullness of Christ. And Father, you know the wounds that each of us bear from your church. And Lord, we pray that where a reconciliation needs to happen, that we would follow Matthew 18. Lord, where forgiveness needs to be extended, that we would extend it first. Lord, that we would forgive as we have been forgiven. Lord, that we would be patient as you have been patient. Lord, we pray and thank you for every spiritual mentor, from the apostles down to our parents and mentors, friends, pastors, evangelists, and all of the wonderful Bible teachers. Lord, we pray that we would not be educated beyond our obedience, but Lord, that more and more we would obey and put into practice that which they have poured into us. We ask this for the glory of God, our Father, who is over all and in all. In Jesus' name, amen.